Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. I was uh, just thinking earlier this afternoon, um, uh, for those who don't know me, those who are new maybe, my name is Eni Swart, I'm, uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and I was just thinking this afternoon how privileged I am to to pastor you guys, you're an awesome bunch, and uh, I'm really thankful to the Lord. I was thinking there's only one thing I'm more thankful for than that, and that's that I can serve the Lord, <laughs> which is, uh, he's a bit more awesome than you are. <laughs> no offense, you know. <laughs> uh, I want to I speak a little bit um, about God's will um, from 1 Kings 18. Um, from about verse 36 to the beginning of uh, chapter 19. Uh, I've, I've been busy now on and off for a couple of months uh, doing a series on um, Elijah's life. And this is sort of a continuation of that. And um, I've been, this, this specific passage or portion I've been wrestling with and, you know, just reading it and rereading it and making notes in, my, in the margin of my Bible and trying to figure out what is this about. And then I realized it's or the, the theme that stood out to me was God's will um, and the different aspects of God's will, how, how it's revealed, how it's accomplished, etc. And I was thinking about it, you know, God's will really is um, something big to us. Uh, as a pastor, I, I don't think I'm asked any question more from people who come for counsel than what is God's will for my life? <laughs> Um, and, and I think that's probably um, the universal experience of most pastors. We come to church services to discover God's will. We pray, let your will be done. We wrestle with the fact of, or, or the, the, we wrestle with how God's will fits in with our suffering and our hardship. Uh, God's will is sometimes a mystery to us um, and sometimes an absolute delight to us. You know, we, when we're in a situation, often God's will is a mystery. And it's like, what on earth is going on? God, really? <laughs> What's happening here, you know? Um, but then sometimes when you look back, like five, ten years ago, and all of a sudden, you know, what they say, hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, all of a sudden it makes sense and things click into place sometimes, not always, but sometimes. And then you realize, wow, okay, so that's what you were up to, God. That's actually your will was really good, better than what my will would have been for the situation. But God's will is, a, on the one hand, a difficult, and on the other hand, a delightful thing, you know. And um, something that I think none of us can say we fully have handles on and, and really understand. So uh, I'm going to look, uh, I don't think First Kings 18 and 19 um, answers all our questions about God's will, but it does give us some really important insights that we're going to look into and, and, and dig through a bit. So I'm going to just discuss... Um, this portion under three, maybe if I have time, four headings. So God's will revealed, God's will accomplished, God's will empowered, and uh, if we have time, God's will resisted. So let's jump in there um, and read the passage. Ooh. Okay, 1 Kings 18. I'm just going to read the first two verses of the chapter and then jump to verse 36. It says, After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. Now remember, um, the context was three and a half years before that, and that's what the, what the time reference there refers to. Um, 
Elijah had come to Ahab and said, because of Israel's sin, God's going to judge Israel and in fact the whole region by bringing a drought on the land and, and there will be no rain or dew. That's in the beginning of chapter 17, the, the previous chapter. Go, so now, now God says, um, go and present yourself to Ahab and I'll send rain on the land. So Elijah went and presented himself to Ahab. Verse 36 says, at the time of the sacrifice, now this is the climax um, of the whole confrontation between Elijah, the prophet of Yahweh, and then the 450 prophets of Baal. Uh, and, and you remember Baal was the storm god, the rain god, who claimed to bring the rain. And this was, on the one hand, a show-off between um, Elijah and the Baal prophets, but on, on another level, a show-off between Yahweh, the god of Israel, and Baal, the god of, um, of the Phoenicians. And, and uh, this is sort of the climax. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Because they'd thrown water over the, the, the altar and, you know, it filled the trench around it. Just, just to, for Elijah to prove that this is no, you know, sleight of hand trick. Verse 39 says, Then all the people, uh, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain started falling and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Interesting portion of scripture, right? And uh, like I said, I'm just going to discuss it under a couple of headings. God's will revealed, God's will accomplished, God's will empowered, and if we have time, God's will resisted. So let's look at God's will revealed. Um, this passage shows us a few different ways in which God's will is revealed. And um, maybe you saw them as I was reading through through the passage, but let me just highlight them for you. The first way, and my wife said to me, any You've you got to be practical, and you've got to say, you've got to tell, um, you've got to tell the guys, okay, not only how God's will is revealed, but how do you test it? 
Because that's what she wants to know. How do you test it? So anyway, I said, okay, good question, honey. So with each, each, of, um, each of the ways uh, that I mentioned that uh, our God's will is revealed, I also mentioned one way in which it can be tested or, or has been uh, tested. So it says in, 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 in 1 Kings 18 verse 1 and 2, after a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. And that's the first way in which the will of God is is revealed sort of by a prophetic promise. Sort of a combination actually of a of an instruction and a promise. Go, present yourself to Ahab, which he then subsequently did, and I will send rain on the land. And 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 here clearly um it's it's the word of the Lord um that that come that God speaks directly to to Elijah as a prophet. So one way in which we can receive words is, is prophetically, prophetic promises. Um, and one way to test that, and, and it's not in the, in the direct context, um, how do you know if a prophetic promise or instruction is of the Lord? Um, not in the direct context, but if you go and read on, in, I think it's in chapter 19, it speaks about the school of the prophets when Elijah eventually gets Elisha. And, and they sort of travel together. It eventually at some stage speaks about the school of the prophets. Now, why would you need a school of the prophets if you just hear from the Lord and you immediately automatically hear correctly and there's no training involved? School implies training, right? In other words, one of the ways, one of the sort of safeguards and ways to test what you're hearing and to learn to hear more accurately is to do it in community. To do it in community. In other words, don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. You know, we're supposed to be a prophetic community who together hear from the Lord. Hearing from the Lord and being led by the Spirit is supposed to characterize the children of God. Isn't that what the New Testament says? Romans 8, verse, I think it's 14. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Right? Okay? Those who are prophetically led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So we're supposed to be a prophetic community, and prophecy is supposed to happen in community. Um, so you're at the right place. That's the good news. <laughs> you're at the right place. Another way is through prophetic instructions. Um, verse 36 says, um, At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and said, O Lord, God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and have done all these things at your command. I've done all these things at your command. Okay, so God's prophetic instructions. God gave the instructions for the, that whole firefight on Mount Carmel that happened there. Um, and by the way, if you want to go and listen to the previous sermons, they're on the internet, so download them and listen to them if you want to catch up. Um, and then it says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, and uh, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. How, how, how do you test that? How do you test prophetic instructions? And promises. Well, another way is they come to pass. The fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice and the altar and all that kind of stuff. Okay? So another way to test words is just to check. Do they actually come to pass? Okay? Um, that, that's sort of an obvious way. Um, and that's not something that's changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. For a word to be a legitimate prophetic word, it must actually still come to pass. 
Okay? Now, you can misinterpret, and there are examples of that in the Bible. For instance, this is one example of where Paul, um, Agabus, this New Testament prophet, comes and takes Paul's belt and ties his hands together, and he says, thus will the Jews do to the man to whom this belt belongs. And so Paul, you know, they're all complaining and say, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And he says, no, I must go. I know I must go. So he goes, and, and in every church, in every city that he, that he goes to, they, by the Spirit, predict what will happen, that, he'll, you know, that persecution and suffering await him in Jerusalem. And then they say, therefore, they draw the wrong conclusion and say, therefore, you mustn't go to Jerusalem. And then Paul says, why are you breaking my heart? <laughs> you know, I'm willing to suffer and even die to fulfill my calling, you know. So, uh, and, and just, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe not spend too much time on that. So the second way is prophetic instruction. Prophetic promises, prophetic instructions. But a, a third way, uh, which is a bit more subtle in the text, uh, is through Scripture. In verse 14, it says, Then Elijah commanded, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Um, why, did, uh, why did Elijah have the Baal prophet slaughtered in the Kishon Valley? If you can just bring up the next scripture. Next slide. Um, the reason was it was in obedience to scripture. Now I just want to say a little bit something about that. Um, in Deuteronomy... 13, verse 12 to 15, it says the following. If you hear it said about one of the towns uh, the Lord your God has, is giving you to live in, that wicked men have arisen among you and have led the people of their town astray, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods you have not known, then you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. And if it is true and it, is been, and, and it has been proven, that this detestable thing has been done among you, you must certainly put to the sword all who live in that town. In other words, what Elijah was doing here by killing the 450 or having the 450 Baal prophets killed, put to the sword, was in obedience to that. Deuteronomy 13. Now, I, I often hear this. I'm, I'm a teacher, obviously. So I, often guys will come to me and say, um, Henny, I... I, I don't study the scriptures because I'm a prophet. I'm not a teacher like you. <laughs> and um, that, that's what, what's called gifting cop-out. <laughs> have, you, have you ever heard of gifting cop-out? Okay. That's not my gifting, so I don't have to do that. Okay. I'm not an evangelist, so I don't have to evangelize. <laughs> I'm not a teacher, so I don't have to study scripture. <laughs> I'm not a pastor, so I don't have to care for people. Huh? Gifting cop out. <laughs> okay. Forgetting obviously that the so called fivefold ministry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, all of them are given to do what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that everyone can come to maturity. In other words, in order to be equipped for the work of the ministry and to grow into maturity, all of us have to receive something from. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. There's an aspect of each of those that we all need um, in order to grow into maturity and be, be equipped um, to do our ministry. Um, 
You know what I usually say to people when they when they say that you know I'm I'm a prophet I don't need to read need scripture need to read scriptures I say well <laughs> you know um, beware you don't become a false prophet because the false prophets were the ones who didn't know the scriptures the true prophets like Elijah actually knew the scripture and could obey them and they didn't always quote the scriptures explicitly when they prophesied but what they said was full of scripture. If you know scripture and you read their writings, you'll, you'll, you'll find it's just permeated with scripture, um, with, the, with the, the law of Moses and so on. But there's something else here that I think is very interesting and very important for us to notice. I mean, we read this. You know, Elijah had all the bold prophets, 450 of them, taken down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there, and we cringe. Ooh, you know, Right? Am I the only one? I don't think so. Okay. Um, we cringe because we say, oh, you know, that's so intolerant. You know, that's so violent. That's so extreme, you know, killing them, you know. Um, and I'm not going to make excuses for that, but I, I want to use that to make a point. And a very important point, I think. A very important point. If your God cannot tell you things you don't like, he's not truly a God. If your God only ever tells you things that you want to hear and already agree with, then it's probably not the true God. You're probably just worshipping an idealized version of yourself. Um, I don't know who of you have seen the movie. There was a movie a couple of, it's probably more than a decade, probably a couple of decades ago now. I'm showing my age here, sorry. There's a movie called The Stepford Wives. Have any, has anyone seen it? Okay, I'm, I'm just going to sort of give you sort of the basic plot of the, the, the movie. It was this, in Stepford, this, this sort of upper-class American suburb uh, area, rich people, rich young families lived. And the men decided they were sick and tired of their wives always arguing with them. They wanted wives who just said, yes, dear, no, dear, three bags full, dear. Whatever you say, dear. That's the kind of wives they wanted. So they got chips and implanted them in their wives, you know, so that their wives would basically become robots. They will just, they will never argue with them, never, never, you know, contradict them and always just say, yes, dear. So it's, it's this funny and scary movie. <laughs> Guys, you're not supposed to laugh too loud now, okay? As though you, enjoy, you think this is a good idea. You guys must you know, like play cool now, okay? Uh, but the problem is, if you have a stepfit wife who has a chip implanted so that she never disagrees with you, you don't really have a wife. You have a kitchen appliance. <laughs> she's a computer. She's a robot. If someone cannot disagree with you, you cannot have relationship with them. Not real relationship. Right? Not real relationship. That's not a real relationship. In other words, if, if you want someone that always just agrees with you and says what you like to hear, then, then you, what you're basically saying is, I don't want relationship. Now, guess what? So many people treat God like that. They want a stepfoot God. A God that they can place a little chip in so that God will only ever tell them what they want to hear. But one of the tests that you're actually hearing from God is that sometimes... Sometimes he tells you things you don't want to hear. You don't like to hear. You don't even agree with it. 
It freaks you out. That's one of the tests. Does your God sometimes tell you things that you don't like? Does your God sometimes tell you things that make you cringe? If he doesn't, maybe you're serving a step-fit God. Maybe you've metaphorically put a chip in your God. So he only tells you what you want to hear. Okay. Um, So the, the first way is God's will is revealed prophetically in many different ways and also through scripture and there are ways that we can test that that's how God's will is revealed Um, and also obviously you know any prophetic word that we receive the first test it must line up with scripture if you think you hear the Holy Spirit prophetically telling you something that contradicts scripture then Probably you're not hearing from the Holy Spirit because the same Holy Spirit who speaks to us prophetically also inspired the scripture and he's not going to contradict himself. The second is God's will accomplished. And note the difference between how Elijah tells Ahab to respond and how Elijah himself responds. I just want to read that in, um, in verse 41. It says, And Elijah said to Ahab, Now this is after... You know, the fire of the Lord had come down and the Baal prophets had uh, been slain. It says, Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. So, so Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Notice, he tells, it's, remember it's in the context of a, of a famine. Famine means there's hardly any water, there's hardly any food. Okay? So he tells Ahab, King Ahab, go and eat and drink. The two things that are very hard to do in a, in a famine. Go and eat and drink. And then he, it, 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 in fact the text says, but Elijah went up Mount Carmel too. And he bent down, put his head between his knees and basically prayed. So in other words... How do you respond to a prophetic word? Once you've received it, once you've tested it, etc. How do you respond to it? How do you tell other people to respond to it? Well, what we learn from Elijah is he told Ahab to go and act as though this word would be fulfilled. Go and eat and drink. In other words, act as though the famine's going to be broken. The drought's going to be broken. Eat and drink. Okay? But what did he go and do? He went and prayed for the word to be fulfilled. Whereas Ahab had to act as though the word would be fulfilled, Elijah, the one who received the prophetic word, had to pray for the word to be fulfilled. You seeing what's going on here? Okay, some of you are not surprised. I'm not surprised that you're not surprised. I'm going to, um, let me put it to you this way. In verse 1, it says the word. Here's what's happened. In, in 1 Kings 18 verse 1, Elijah had already received the word of the Lord that told him, go and present yourself to Ahab and, and I'll send rain. So he'd already received the word that it would rain. Then in verse, what is it, uh, 41, he says, go and eat and drink for I hear the sound of heavy rain. He not only received the word that it would rain, he was now in his prophetic imagination hearing the sound of the heavy rain already. 
And yet he still went and prayed until he saw a cloud. You're starting to see what's going on here. Because you see, we so often think, well, God's already said it. I can already hear the sound of heavy rain. It's going to happen. Why must I pray? Can you see how we often respond wrongly to prophetic words that God gives us, to prophetic guidance when God reveals his will to us? Because we think if God has revealed it and he said it's going to happen, then it's going to happen without our participation. Wrong. Elijah understood something that we sometimes forget. God has chosen to use human agency. And he's going to give us the prophetic word because he has chosen to use human agency. And he's going to cause us to hear the sound of the heavy rain because he has chosen to use human agency. But then he's also going to use us to pray the very thing that he said was going to happen into being because he has chosen to use human agency. In other words, there's a connection between prophecy and prayer that we sometimes forget about. Another thing that I just want you to notice is just the way that Elijah responds after he prays. You see, so often, especially if we think it's something the Lord has told us is going to happen, we'll pray and say, okay, well, that's it. It's settled. God has said he's going to heal you. I've prayed for you. You're healed. No, 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 I don't care that you don't feel healed. I don't don't care that that, that it's still painful. I don't care that you, you healed. God said, I prayed. That's it. Settles it. That's not how Elijah responds. How does he respond? He bows down, puts his head between his knees by implication. He doesn't say he prayed, but by implication it's, he prayed. And then he says to his servant, go look towards the sea. The servant comes back and said, nothing. What does he do? Prays again. Go and look towards the sea. He sends him back seven times until he sees the cloud. He's very real, and he actually tests in a very real way whether his prayers have actually been answered. And it's, in other words, Elijah's not into wishful thinking like we so often are. He's very realistic. And not only that, he expects God's supernatural answer in a very natural way. In uh, Luke 12, verse 54, it says, um, you look to the sky and you, and, you, and you see a cloud in the west, and you say it's going to rain, and it does. That's in the New Testament. And, and on the west was where the sea was. Because obviously the evaporation happens in the sea. The water evaporates from the sea. And then the clouds come over and, and it rains. So, so whenever, a, 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 what do you call it? A west wind was blowing from the sea. Um, and, and clouds formed in this, over the sea. And the wind blew the clouds over. That's when it rained in, in the Middle East, in, in Israel. Context where, where Jesus and where, where Elijah were. Notice... Elijah doesn't say um, to his servant, just go and look up any direction in the sky. He says, go and look towards the sea. Go and look towards the west, in other words. Because that's where the rain would normally come from. In fact, Elijah expects God to supernaturally answer this prayer, but in a very natural way. God's not going to send rain from the east. He's going to send rain rain from the west, from the sea. Okay? Um, But he tells him to look. And here's another thing. When Elijah prayed for the fire to fall, he only prayed once, and his prayer was answered. When he prayed for the rain to fall, he had to pray eight times. 
Prayed once, sent the sermon, and then sent him back seven times. That's eight. Prayed eight times. Why? Why the difference? Why the one time did he have to pray only once and immediately there's an answer? While the, the other time, he had to pray eight times. Before, and it, it seems, you know, over a, quite a period of time, you know, maybe, maybe even a couple of hours that he spent praying and interceding. And only then did he get the answer. What's the difference? I can't say that the difference is that the Lord had given him a word that one would happen and the other one wouldn't. He, he clearly had a, a word from the Lord, a prophetic word that, in both cases, that it would happen. You see, the point there is that there's no one size fits all. There's no one size fits all. Sometimes you're going to pray once and boom, God's going to answer your prayer. Sometimes you're going to have to pray eight times. Sometimes you're going to have to pray for months or even years before God answers your prayer. God doesn't always tell us the exact timing of his answer. Um, in other words, what I want you to see here is that Elijah didn't assume that just because the Lord had said so, said something was going to happen, that it would happen without him praying about it. Can you see how we have a bit more important role to play in this than we sometimes realize? Sometimes we just receive the word and then we sit back passively and wait on the Lord. Because those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. But what we, what we do is not wait in prayer, you know. <laughs> we passively wait instead of actively waiting in prayer and trusting the Lord. Um, I just want to read you a scripture in um, James chapter 5. Because this actually quotes. It says, the, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would rain, that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. And this clearly is a, is a reference to what we've just read of Elijah. And the interesting thing to me, one of the, the first things that I noticed, and I, and I like I said, I, I I started in 1 Kings 17 and preached all the way through here. It doesn't actually say that Elijah prayed. Not in any of these three chapters. Chapter 17, 18, or 19, does it actually explicitly say Elijah prayed? It certainly does not say that he prayed for the rain, for, for the rain to stop and for the drought to come. It just says in the beginning of chapter 17, he came and he announced to Ahab, it's not going to rain or dew in the land until, you know, except at my word. It never actually said he prayed. And even here in chapter 18, it just says he bent down, put his head between his knees. It doesn't actually say he prayed. Now, you can assume, and I think quite rightly so, that he, that's a posture of prayer. But, but how does James know he earnestly, because it says here, look here. It says he earnestly prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain. And then he, again he prayed. When, when 1 Kings 17 and 18 does not say that Elijah prayed for, for the rain to stop, how can... James say that he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. Is in James's mind the connection between the prophetic word and the prayer for it to be fulfilled so certain that he can assume that Elijah must have prayed because that is the usual way in which the Lord works? I think maybe so. 
I think maybe in James's mind he's like, yeah, obviously he prayed. I mean, the text doesn't say so, but that is how God works. So we can assume. Because God usually expects us to pray into being what he tells us is going to happen. Why else would he tell us? It's not like he needs our permission to do it. But he wants to use us. He wants to involve us in it. Are you, are, are you surprised yet? Okay. Um, my wife, where, where is Rochelle? I wish she were here so she can come and tell the story herself. She's hiding in the parents' room. Rochelle, come <laughs> tell the story yourself. She's, she's going to hide out there. I know it's going to happen. But um, <laughs> we were at university together, and um, we were in Bible school together and sang in the church choir together and so on. And um, at some stage, the Lord told her, she says, that uh, we're going to get married. So um, she had a vision. A, I don't know if it was a dream or a vision. I think, it, yeah, of um, of us. And just, I think I was hugging her or something. And, and she just, we were just very really close. And she just knew that, you know, in this, in this dream or vision, we were married. <laughs> Told you I knew. <laughs> And, and then she, you know, I, I came to visit her, and um, it was late at night. I was at, at Siemensberg. We had a small group there. Um, I, I wasn't actually in the hostel, but I, I was leading a small group there. It was late at night. I think it was probably after 11. So I walked past to my house, and my house was very close to hers, and, and the lights were on. I didn't know she slept with the lights on sometimes. So I knocked at the door. I said, oh, she's awake. You know, the lights are on. So I knocked at the door, and she, like, came out, you know, all groggy, you know, in her, in her pajamas and so on. And we sort of cared, because uh, I, I promised her, you know, we'd, we'd sort of been introduced, and I promised her I'd, I'd come and visit, you know, when she told me where she lives, you know. She, she thought, ah, you know, this white guy, you know, he's not going to come visit me, you know. So I did, you know. My wife would have been better off if she had come to tell the story. Okay. <laughs> So afterwards, after I left, you know, um, you know I was teased because she said, she told me afterwards that, that you know, she was so demacar and, and, and sort of flustered that she, that she put the milk on the rack and, and, and the sugar back in the fridge. And um, so I, I left, and, and afterwards she, couldn't, she said she couldn't sleep. And she said, Lord, what's going on, you know? Show me what's going on. And, and so she, she opened up the scripture, you know, and the Lord took her to Song of Solomon. Now, um, I, I don't know whether she, I mean, if you're looking for a word, you know, that you want, you know, something in the sort of romantic direction, then Song of Solomon's not a bad choice. But, but let's, let's give my wife the benefit of the doubt and, and say the Lord really led her there. So we really believe that. And, um, and uh, there, was, there was this one scripture, um, my, my beloved stands at the door, my, my heart is awake within me, I cannot sleep, you know. And, and that's exactly, described exactly how she felt. And she's like, wow. But, and she said, but, but hang on, God, he's, he's white. And then God took to, to just a couple of scriptures later. Um, my beloved is white and ruddy, chief among ten thousands. <laughs> so, um, you would think, that, okay, it's settled, you know, it's clear, you know, we're going to, I am the beloved, you know, we're going to get married. Um, and yet she had to pray for it for quite a while. Um, I think it was definitely more than a year. 
maybe almost two years that we pray, that she prayed, where I was sort of blissfully unaware and slowly sort of starting to suspect that maybe, you know, God had in mind for us, you know, to, to get married. And then eventually we did get married. But the point is just God gave a clear prophetic word, a prophetic vision, and then something from Scripture to confirm it. But she still had to pray. And God used her prayers um, and um, to answer, to, to, to fulfill his, his prophetic word. Now, why could Elijah receive such prophecies and such answers to prayer? Why? And I want to submit to you that we find at least part of the answer in uh, verse 46. How much time do I have left? Okay. And I want to take too long. Verse 46 says, The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Just by the way, I'm quite glad my wife prayed for that, for that prophetic word to be fulfilled. Um, yeah, the Lord really blessed me with a wonderful wife. Um, not, I, I don't think we necessarily would have chosen each other. Just bring up that uh, picture again of us. Uh, the first slide, I just remember. There we go. Uh, I don't think we would have necessarily in the natural have chosen each other. Um, but, but clearly the Lord meant us for each other. I mean, you, you can just look at our beautiful children, and then you can see, I mean, that, that, is, that is, must be meant by God. <laughs> okay. It, um, it says the power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and then he outran Ahab's chariot all the way to Jezreel, which, by the way, was 27 kilometers from Mount Carmel. So... Was it 27 kilometers? Yeah, 27 kilometers. That's right. So for 27 kilometers, he ran faster than a chariot. That's impressive. You need the power of the Lord to do that. You need the power of the Lord to do that. But I think that gives us a clue to what was going on in Elijah's life that enabled him to have such potency both prophetically and in prayer. It says the power of the Lord in the NIV, but literally in the Hebrew, it says the hand of the Lord was upon him. The hand of the Lord was upon him. Now, now, power of the Lord is an acceptable translation, but it doesn't give all the information. Because hand of the Lord is, a, is sort of a, a phrase that doesn't only say that it was the Lord's power, but, but what that power was. And I just want to give you one example of that. If you can just bring up uh, Ezekiel 37, um, verse 1. It says, the hand of the Lord, that same exact same phrase used in, in uh, 1 Kings 18, the last verse. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And that's that chapter of the dry bones, you know, that, that eventually rise up in a, into a mighty army. In other words, what, what we see here, the parallelism there shows us that the hand of the Lord actually refers to the Spirit of the Lord. And that's confirmed in 1 Kings 18 as well, because earlier in that chapter, in verse 12, it says, I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord is. This is where Obadiah um, meets Elijah. He says, I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave. So it seems like, you know, Elijah's sort of normal mode of transport was the Spirit of the Lord. <laughs> the Lord, Spirit of the Lord takes him somewhere and, and you know, Ahab can search high and low. He's not going to find him. And, you know, the spirit of the Lord, the power, the hand of the Lord comes upon him and he outruns Ahab's chariot, you know. So, you know, that was his spiritual gift, you know. (laughs) 
running, running in the spirit. Okay. Um, the spirit of the Lord was the key to Elijah's accurate prophecies and his answers prayers. That's what I believe. Um, and in James, actually, it in a sense refers to that. Let me just read that to you. In, in Just get that again. James, James 5, verse 16. The last part says, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Literally, if you could just go to the, the, other, the other James scripture, the other one that has James. I, I did a literal translation of this from the Greek. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a difficult phrase to translate, but this is literally, you know, what it says. It says, great power has the supplication. The, the word there is not the normal word for prayer. Um, it's a different word. It's, it's requesting, supplication. Often, actually, the normal word for prayer, prayer and supplication, are actually used together in the New Testament, especially by Paul. So great power is the supplication of the righteous being energized. Now, that um, being energized... Um, is a Greek participle called energumene, and, and they translate it the way they do in the NIV, and in fact in all the other translations, because they think it's a, what they, what's called a middle. Now you get a passive voice and an active voice in English and Afrikaans as well, but in Greek they have a middle voice, which is different. Sorry, I'm not going to bore you with all the detail. I'm just mentioning this. Now all of them translate it as a middle, but I think actually it's a passive voice, because the middle was um, he he was empowered or energized concerning himself or for himself. That's what the middle would mean. But if you look before this verse, it talks about a sick brother who calls in the elders who then pray for him because the effect of fervent prayer of righteous is, you know, that, that kind of thing. So before, it, it's, it's not praying for himself. It's not having power for himself, but for a sick person that you pray for. And then directly after that, it speaks of Elijah praying for rain. First that the rain would stop and then that the rain would start. So it's also not praying for himself. So I, and the, the problem is the middle and the passive look exactly the same. They have exactly the same form. You have to look at the context. Now, what I'm trying to say is I think that actually should be translated as a passive. And that's why I have it translated there, being energized or being made powerful. <clears throat> so if you look at that and what it means for prayer, it, it, it's saying two things. Three things, actually. Number one, Elijah's prayers were powerful because they were supplications he was asking. Number two, they were powerful because they were energized, empowered, in other words. Literally, that's what it would mean, empowered. And thirdly, they were empowered because he was righteous. And right there you say, ah, that's why I'm not as powerful. You know, my prayers are not as powerful as Elijah's because I'm not as empowered as he is because I'm not as righteous as he is. Right? That's the excuse we're going to use to let ourselves off the hook. Not so fast. <laughs> Not so fast. Let's go back to 1 Kings. <clears throat> when we think of righteous, what do we think of? When you think of the word righteous, someone is, if someone is described as righteous, what would you think? Just tell the person next to you what, what you think of when you think of someone being described as righteous. What kind of a person is it? I would suspect I would suspect that a great many of you would have said someone who's really good. Someone who's in fact perfect, maybe even. A really good person who's right, you know, who does right. 
And, and, but that's only a part of what righteous means. Literally, righteous doesn't primarily speak about your actions. It does include that, but that's not primary. It primarily speaks about relationship. Righteousness is a relationship word. In other words, righteousness speaks about right relationship. Before it speaks to, it speaks of right relationship that leads to right action, but it's not primarily right action. Okay? And was Elijah perfect? When it says he was righteous, does it mean he was perfect? You say no. Why do you say no? No. <laughs> In principle, nobody's perfect. But what does the text tell us? <clears throat> the text actually shows us that Elijah definitely was not perfect. Let me read you just uh, two verses in uh, 1 Kings 18. <clears throat> Verse 22 says, Then Elijah said to them, that's the prophets of Baal, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Okay? I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Go up a couple of verses to verse 13, where Obadiah, who was a palace official, says to him, Haven't you heard, my Lord Elijah, what I did when Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifteen each, and supplied them with food and water. Obadiah says that to Elijah. So Elijah knows of at least a hundred prophets beside himself. A hundred prophets of the Lord left. And in front of everyone, maybe he was feeling a bit sorry for himself. Maybe he was sort of trying to sort of build himself up. He says, I'm the only of the Lord's prophets left. So right there you have, number one, a blatant lie, which he knows is a lie. Because Obadiah told him there's a hundred other prophets left. And probably that lie was told in pride. Elijah was far from perfect. And that's exactly what James says, isn't it? It says, Elijah was a man just like us. He was just like us. He was fallen. He was sinful. In other words, he was a righteous man, but he wasn't a perfect man. In other words, the implication is you don't have to be perfect to be righteous. Hello, that's good news. I'm not perfect, but I want to have right relationship with God. And this tells me that I don't have to be perfect to have right relationship with God. I don't have to be perfect to be righteous. <clears throat> I can be righteous in the same way that imperfect Lie-telling, pride in his heart, Elijah was righteous. Is that, am I being a bit harsh on poor Elijah here? Yeah? I'm just being real. The, the, the Bible is amazing because it does not sugarcoat its heroes. There's only one perfect hero in the Bible, and that's not Elijah. Actually, there are two, depending on how you count them. Um, so... Elijah was empowered. His prayers were empowered, even though he wasn't righteous in the sense of being perfect. So our prayers can also be empowered in the same way that Elijah's were, without us having to be perfect. We, we also fallen. We also lie, just like Elijah. Come on. Be honest now. <laughs> Don't lie about your lying. Okay? <laughs> we all do. Sometimes we want to cover up. Sometimes we want to make someone feel better. Sometimes we don't want to fess up and own up about a mistake we made. 
some less than others. I see Hercules is glaring at me because he doesn't <laughs> do it as often as the rest of us. <laughs> Just teasing you, Herky. But um, all of us are imperfect. Just like Elijah. He was a man just like us. And yet his prophecy was potent and his prayer were were potent because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. The hand of God was upon him. The Spirit of God was upon him. Um, Why? Why would God empower a liar like Elijah with his Holy Spirit? What right does he have to do that? Isn't he a holy God? Doesn't he hate sin? Isn't he supposed to judge all sin? Or is God now being tolerant of sin and sort of sweeping it under the rug? What excuse does God have for empowering a liar like Elijah? Well, it tells us. The fire of the Lord came down upon the holy sacrifice, not the unholy people, including Elijah. Elijah is one of the unholy people. I mean, the others, the rest of Israel were worshipping idols. Granted, that's a bit worse. <laughs> but Elijah was also unholy. He was lying. He was a liar. And, and, and it's not a lie that stopped there. He tells the same lie in chapter 19 as well. He says to the Lord, I'm the only one left. Go and read the next chapter. You know? So he had a bit of a problem there. Okay? <laughs> but this, the fire of the Lord, and, and, and last week, was last week where Cornell preached on Job? If you, did, if you missed it, please go and download it. It was brilliant. I loved it. Cornell really preached Job really well. One of the best sermons I've ever heard on Job. And, and he, he t- talks about how in the beginning of Job, the fire of God comes down and destroys the, what's it, the, was the sheep or the camels or whatever, something. The fire of God, because, um, in other words, God's judgment the devil wanted him to associate it with God's judgment, like God has rejected you. And here it says the fire of the Lord came down on the sacrifice, consuming the sacrifice on the altar and so on. The, the holy sacrifice, not the unholy people. And all of both of those points are intensified under the new covenant. You see, Jesus is the ultimate holy sacrifice upon whom the fire of the Lord in judgment comes down. On the ultimate, the most holy sacrifice, rather than on us, the unholy people. And, so so it's intensified in that sense, but it's also intensified in the sense that in the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, only certain select leaders received the Holy Spirit's empowering. But Jesus, the most holy sacrifice, the fire of the Lord came, and the judgment of God came down upon him, so that the Spirit of the Lord can be poured out on all flesh. On each of us. So each of us can be empowered in exactly the same way that Elijah was. By the Spirit of God. The hand of God can be upon us to do the same. Or at least similar things. Maybe not exactly the same things. But similar things. Even though just like Elijah we're imperfect. And still struggling with certain sins. Isn't that good news? I think that's good news. It's good news to me. And this gives us. Imperfect though we are, the confidence to pray like Elijah prayed. The confidence of praying and expecting God to answer our prayers. The confidence that God can speak to me also, even though, like Elijah, I'm just a man. Like Elijah, I'm also a liar. Like Elijah, I'm far from perfect. I can expect God to also speak to me and also answer my prayers because I don't have to be perfect for that to happen because of what Jesus did. 
the ultimate sacrifice. Okay, I think I'm going to stop there because I don't want to belabor the point too much. But what I want you to see here is two things. Number one, there's a very, very strong link between prophecy and prayer. And we mustn't forget that link. So whenever God tells us something, it's probably because he wants us to pray about it. First thing. Second thing is, you don't have to be perfect. Because of what Jesus, the, 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 the most holy sacrifice, did and received, the fire of God, you don't have to be perfect to hear from God and to have God hear you and answer your prayers. You don't have to be perfect. Elijah was a man just like us. And I hope that encourages you to pray more. To pray more earnestly like Elijah did. To pray more confidently. And to be more real in your prayer. Amen. Are you encouraged? Let's stand. Imagine. Imagine if we were a community. <clears throat> a community of imperfect people. Who are righteous. Nonetheless. Because of Jesus, who prayed prophetic prayers like Elijah did. Imagine if we were a whole community who did like that, who lived like that, who heard from the Lord and then prayed what the Lord said into being. Allowed ourselves to be used to, to pray what God has promised to do into being. Imagine what kind of a community we'd be. I think we may have a massive impact in the society in this community, in, in Santon, in Joburg. And I think that other people were also just humans like Elijah and like us would feel quite comfortable amongst us. Because we don't hear from the Lord because we're perfect or because we're better or holier than thou. And our prayers aren't answered because we're better than anyone else. But like Elijah, just because we've received grace. And we can invite others who are like us, imperfect, like Elijah as well. Invite them in and say, come and experience the same grace. Come, from, come and hear from Elijah's God and be heard by Elijah's God. Come and hear from our God and be heard by our God, just like we are. Let's ask God for that. Father, we want to be that community of imperfect prophetic prayers who hear you and who are heard by you. We want to be a tool, a community through whom your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Please use us in this way, Lord. We don't ask it because we deserve it, because we are no, under no illusion Lord, we know we don't deserve it. But we know that you hear just normal people like us. And you use ordinary people like us to do extraordinary things, just like you did with Elijah. We know that you are such a God, that you are so powerful, that you can even use imperfect people to do your perfect will. And it's with that confidence, Lord, not confidence in us, but confidence in you, 
that we come and say, use us, Lord. Use us to glorify your name. Use us to make your kingdom come on earth. Use us to let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Use us, Lord, to draw in people from this community who have deep needs that can only be met through your supernatural power in answer to prayer. We come and just present ourselves to you, Lord. We, God, you know I want to pray more. I know I don't pray as much as I ought to. I don't even pray as much as I want to. And yet you answer my prayers, Lord. And I thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that each of us, Lord, will be encouraged to pray more. Thanks for listening to this message from Shafa Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.com. Dot Jarbo.